John chapter 8 is where we're at, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. We're going to go through verse 11. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful account of uh, the gospel, uh, the gospel at work. God, thank you for, um, for the beautiful mixture of justice and grace that are in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would... Um, Move our hearts, God, to um, bring people to you that they might receive your mercy, that they might not be condemned, that they might sin no more. Father, help us to be incredibly careful, God, in the way that we use the law and approach the law. Father, I, I pray that you would guide us through this text this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, in your Bibles, thank you. Thank you. In your Bibles, um, there's something we got to cover here first, and, and I wish we didn't have to do this, but I, I just I want to be a good pastor to you, and so I, I want to answer maybe questions that would come up. So in, in your Bibles, um, if you're looking at like a text like this, you're going to notice that at the very beginning, I, I don't know how your Bible handles this, it might be like a footnote, it might be a little kind of bracketed something, mine is, is in brackets right above chapter 8. And, and what mine says, yours is probably going to say something similar, I would imagine. It says the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11. Okay? Now, um, I, had, I had a decision to make this morning. I can either just skip that, figuring that most of you are not going to see that, uh, or I can, you know try to deal with it, or I, I could just not preach the passage. There's a lot of things I could have done. Um, what, what I want to do is I, I want to I help you understand that. First of all, um, it is amazing how little this happens, okay? Um, I can think of really two places of any consequence in the entire Bible that this happens, okay? Um, what, what, what we have here is, uh, of all the manuscripts, the handwritten pieces of papyrus and, and various different things that they have in archaeology, of those that we have, the earliest ones do not include this passage, okay? Um, now, uh, first of all, let, let me give you a little bit of background on the manuscripts. And by the way, if, if you want to know more about this, 
Um, there's a lot of places you could go. Let me give you two accessible places, okay? John Piper, if you just go to his uh, Design God sermons, uh, John chapter 8, he's got one sermon where he, he covers John chapter 8 like we're going to do here, but, but only about half the time. The rest of the time is committed to kind of explaining um, this and, and the authority of the Bible, okay? Or another place, TGC, the Gospel Coalition. If you just, I think if you just put in the search engine, uh, woman caught in adultery or something like that, they have an extensive, it's probably 20, 25 pages of, of just textual information that's pretty readable. I'm giving you kind of the readable uh, versions of this. There's some that if you don't know Greek, you couldn't get through it. But th- these two that I've given you are really helpful, okay? But let, let, me, let me just give you a little excerpt out of some of the, some of the stuff John Piper did that I think is pretty valuable. Okay, so let's think about manuscripts for a second. Let's think about the authority of the New Testament, all right? Um, some things written at a similar time would be like Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, okay? Um, that was composed between, about 50 years prior to Jesus' birth, probably. Um, we have, guess how many we have? We have 10 manuscripts. Okay, this is a Caesar writing this thing, okay? We have 10 manuscripts of that, and they are all from, I think, 900 to 1100 A.D., Okay, so in other words, we only have 10, and they're all around a 1,000 years after Caesar wrote it, okay? Um, I could give you some other examples. Piper gives a bunch. I'm, I'm reading from what he said here. Uh, there's 20 manuscripts of Livy's Roman history written around the time Jesus was alive. Uh, two manuscripts of Tacitus' histories of the annals, which is around 180, 100, about 70 years after Jesus died. Um, there's eight manuscripts of the history of Thucledes, I don't know how to say that, who lived uh, 460 to 400. So those are all sort of contemporaries. And they all have like two to eight to 10 manuscripts. And most of the manuscripts are like a thousand years after it happened, okay? The New Testament, we have 5,801 manuscripts or partial manuscripts, okay? Are you seeing the difference in authority here? Are you seeing the difference in, uh, in certainty? Okay, 5,801. Now, because we have so many, and many of them date back like way back, like third, fourth century, okay? Um, we, because we have so many in, in so many kind of ways, we, we are able to, to with very certainty judge things about the Scriptures, and one of the things that most, not all, I don't, I don't want to like go back and forth, but I'll just tell you, most scholars say is they don't think this section was in John when John wrote it, okay? Now, there's other people that do, and I could give you the, the evidence for that, but, but most would probably say that they don't think it was, okay? Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I'll tell you why in a minute why I don't care, but anyway... Um, Either way, either way, I've read both. They're both compelling. Probably the one that says it wasn't there in the beginning probably is more compelling, okay? So what, what does that mean for us, okay? Well, for me, it doesn't mean anything because of the following reasons, okay? This, this little section was accepted by the early church for thousands of years as being authoritative scripture, okay? It was accepted into the canon of scripture. It was accepted into the uh, canonization process. Uh, all the church councils, uh, e- even clear up into the 1500s, dealt with this. They said, it, this is scripture, okay? Um, one of the things that I think everybody, most everybody agrees is that this actually happened. Okay? So when we say that we don't think John had it in there initially, we're not saying that it didn't happen. Um, do you remember what John said at the end of the Gospel of John, John 21, 25? He said, 
There are, are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written, okay? So what, is, what does John say at the end of the, of the gospel of John? He says, there were so many things that Jesus did that you couldn't even write them all down. I mean, when you, when you imagine three years of ministry, every day he's, he's healing, he's doing miracles, he's engaging the Pharisees, he's teaching. So yeah, three years of that uh, daily ministry. You know, Jesus, was, Jesus wasn't a, like a five-day-a-week guy. You know, I mean, like he's, he's doing things every day for three years. Okay, and all of those things. There's no way that all those things could be, could be compiled. So what we know is there were all kinds of other things that Jesus did that were well-known, that were written down, that were passed along, that were communicated in the church. And, and so we, what we believe is a lot of people, and I think this is compelling, believe actually Luke wrote this. Because there are some manuscripts where, where you find this in Luke's stuff, okay? And so what, what a lot of people believe is that Luke wrote this, and then at some point, um, the, the, the early church felt it necessary to insert it into the Gospel of John um, for their purpose, you know, whatever reason. But anyway, it, I, so here's, here's, here's what I believe at the end of the day, okay? Um, again, most everybody believes Jesus, this happened. Jesus did this. It's, it's historical. It's part of the scriptures. Now, does it occur in the gospel of John? We're not sure. Like originally it does now and it has for thousands of years. So, um, but here's what I believe. I believe in the inspiration of the word of God. In other words, that the Holy Spirit inspired and put together our Bible. I'm fully convinced of that. I believe not only did the Holy Spirit do that, but I believe the Holy Spirit has protected his word for all these centuries. Okay. And so you're saying, I didn't care about any of it, Pastor. Okay, all right, that's fine. Um, good, all right, now let's get to the text. Okay, uh, I, I just, I don't know, I just felt like I should, I should tell you why it says that at the beginning of chapter eight. Okay, all right, now let's get into the text. So what, 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 what okay, here, here's the first thing, right? This has got to be on your mind, okay? Uh, if, you, if you listen to me read that text, this has got to be a question that you're asking. Where's the guy, Right? Right, so it says, what does it say? This, it says this lady was actually caught in the act of adultery, okay? Now, everybody that is of any kind of mature age and understands uh, adultery at all knows that if you catch somebody in the act of adultery, there's, there's two people there, right? Um, so where, where's the guy, right? So they bring this woman who they say was caught in the act of adultery, who they say they have two viable witnesses who saw this happen, okay, who actually saw the thing happen, not like assumed it happened or like saw them together and they were kind of, you know, holding hands a little bit or something. No, no, no. They, they actually saw this woman woman in the act of adultery. And so they're going back to Deuteronomy 22, 22, um, that says in the law, the Old Testament law, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil out of Israel. Okay, so where is the guy, all right? They just bring the gal. Now, what, what we probably can assume from this, uh, and particularly what the text actually says, is that this is all a trap. Okay, this is all a trap. Now, I, I'm not saying the woman didn't do what they said. I think she probably did. I think maybe maybe it was a setup. Uh, for some reason, the guy's not there. there there's got to be a reason for that. But here's what's obvious. They're trying to harm Jesus, okay? They're simply using the woman. They don't care about justice. They really don't care about the innocent party. This woman is just a disposable pawn in their religious game. What are they trying to do here in John 8? Well, it tells us in the story, they're trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to get Jesus 
Jesus into a, a situation where he's forced to do something that's going to harm him. They, they, they want to harm Jesus, all right? They're trying to trap him. And again, they, they do that all through the Gospels. We see multiple instances of that, all right? So, so they bring this woman. They throw her down in front of him. You know, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. They've all brought their rocks, you know? They've all got their rocks, and they're like, okay, now we're ready. Now, what do you say about this, Jesus? You know, she's caught in the act of adultery. You know what Deuteronomy 22, 22 says. So what are you going to do? What do you say, right? They're putting it on him. Now, if he disagrees with the execution, what are they going to say? Well, they're going to go out and tell everybody, hey, you know, this new guy preaching and this new guy doing miracles, he doesn't believe the law. He's against the Bible. That, that's what they're going to say. Well, what if he says, yeah, go ahead and stone her? Well, then they're going to they're gonna stone her, and then they're going to go out and say, man, Jesus told us to do it. You know, this new teacher, man, he is hard. He, he's a hardliner. And they knew that Jesus had great appeal with sinners. In fact, much of Jesus' ministry had been to the tax collector and the broken and the prostitute, right? We, we, you, you've read the Gospels. You know know that Jesus had, had a great following among the, the non-religious people, right? And so they're gonna, their attempt there is to try to turn turn the people against Jesus, maybe even get him in trouble with the Romans. Uh, in this time, J Jerusalem, uh, Israel was a occupied place. And, and so we know even from Jesus' crucifixion that the Jews didn't have the power to execute people without Roman permission. So then maybe they're trying to get him in trouble with the Romans, but they're trying to trap him. They're using religion for their own purposes and power and personal gain, okay? Now, pause there for a second, okay? So this is all a trap. John 8 says it's all a trap. Okay, but what's also true? Well, what's also true in this is that the lady's clearly guilty, at least as far as we know. And I, actually, yeah, she's clearly guilty. Like Jesus even affirms that, okay? There, there's no defense for her. She doesn't try to defend herself. Jesus doesn't defend her actions. There's no excuses and no extenuating circumstances for why her action is justified. She's guilty. She's actually caught in the act. And not only is she caught in the act, but the very thing that none of us want to happen ever happens to her. And not only is she caught in the act, but now her sin is publicly exposed. It's, it, 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 it's publicly displayed for everybody to see. And she has this shame and heaping incredible weight of condemnation by everybody around. Everybody knows there's no covering up. There's no excuses for this horrible act of, of, of sin. And, and, and the, the guys are right about this. Sin does bring judgment. Right? We know that. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Ezekiel 18.4, the soul that sins shall die. Romans 2.12, all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. All right? So what, what, is, what is clear is that she is guilty. What is clear is that sin results in death. What is clear is, is, is the, the Bible is clear about adultery. Okay? So please, I, I, I'm trying to, trying to lay a foundation here. Don't think that Jesus is saying, ah, oh, no, adultery's not that bad. He's not saying that. No, nowhere does the Bible say that. In the book of Proverbs, if you've ever read Proverbs 5, 6, and 7, if you haven't and you're married or you want to be married, man, you ought to, you ought to be really familiar with Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. Let me read you a section out of, uh, out of Proverbs chapter 6. 
Uh, Proverbs 6, beginning in verse 25, Don't desire her beauty in your heart, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his, and, and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is one who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. I mean, the Old Testament is really strong about, about uh, adultery. But, but what about Jesus? Man, Jesus ramped it up. Up even more. In Matthew 5 27, he says, You've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then he goes on in verse 31 and says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever married, marries a divorced woman, uh, commits adultery. Man, Jesus was not soft on adultery. If anything, he was harder than maybe anybody's ever been because he said, you know what? If, you, if you've looked, if you've lusted, if you've imagined, if you've wanted it in your mind, even if you haven't done it, your heart's already guilty of adultery. The New Testament is not soft on adultery. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, or adulterers, or men who practice homosexuality, or thieves, or greedy, or drunkards, or revilers, or swindlers, or inherit the kingdom of God. Such were, okay, it's not that you can't be forgiven, you can't. Such were some of you, church, right? But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. So the Bible, Jesus is not soft on adultery. So she's guilty. Uh, it's in the open. Sin brings death. Jesus is not soft on adultery. So the question becomes, and this is the beautiful question of the text. How's God going to forgive her? Without violating his holy law. How is Jesus, stay with me here. This, 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 this passage is maybe the most beautiful picture of the gospel at work, maybe in the New Testament. All right? How is Jesus about to do what he's about to do? What's he about to do? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. How's he gonna do that? Right? How's he gonna do that? Because, let's, let's walk through it together, right? Because God is a just God. God cannot overlook sin. We, we actually don't want a reigning king who's just like, oh, evil. Taliban comes in, cuts off some heads. Come on, those guys are just feisty. We don't, we don't want a king like that. We don't want a king that just allows evil to run loose. Like, that is not God. God is a just God who cannot overlook sin. God cannot simply be fine with treachery and lies and covenant breaking. And Jesus is God. So how is Jesus going to uphold the justice of God and at the same time show mercy? That's why I love this passage is because it's a beautiful picture of the gospel at work. How's he going to do it? Through the perfect life and substitutionary death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, in Jesus, justice and mercy come together. All right? That, that's the picture of the gospel. 
Here you have this picture of the devastation of sin, this publicly exposed, humiliated, terrified, about to be stoned woman. And how can Jesus wash away the condemnation, lift her up and say, go and sin no more? How can he do that? How can this woman walk away not condemned and empowered to sin no more? Well, it's because of Jesus. It's because of the man they bring this woman to. Okay, so this is a test to see if Jesus will contradict the law. But what the the guys don't don't understand that brought her to him is that Jesus fulfills the law. Do you remember when he said that in Matthew right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount? He says, you know, hey, don't don't think that don't think that any jot or tittle is going to be taken away from the law. I fulfill the law. What was he saying when he when he said I fulfill the law? It, it, what he's saying is I'm the one who's fulfilled the requirements of the law on your behalf. Jesus is the perfect man, the perfect representative. Jesus takes this woman's condemnation upon himself, and he will, in a few short months after John 8 was written, he will die on the cross and pay for it. Jesus takes her condemnation and 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 fulfills the righteousness of God and absorbs the wrath of God. And then he takes his perfect life and can give it to her. Okay, that's the gospel. It's mercy and justice coming together, meeting in the person of Jesus Christ. And, and so the religious leaders, they, they said this trap for Jesus because they can't imagine how he can get out of this. Like, how, how's he going to preach mercy and compassion and be a friend of sinners and also uphold the holiness and justice of God? They have no idea how that can be done. But in Jesus' perfect life and in his sacrificial death, mercy and justice meet. Jesus doesn't condemn her because he's going to take her condemnation. He's going to take her adultery. That, that, let's be specific. Jesus is going to take her adultery upon himself and pay the price for her iniquity. Jesus is going to take the rocks to the head. That's what he's going to do. That's what's happening on the cross is Jesus is going to take the condemnation that we deserve upon himself. The adultery of this woman can be fully paid for by the infinite worth of Jesus' sacrificial death. I like to think of this in terms of worth, okay? So how big a debt does adultery create? Huge, right? Enormous. The betrayal, the breaking of a marriage covenant, the lies, the becoming one flesh with someone not your spouse. I would direct your attention again to Proverbs chapter 6. Um, it, it has this great way of describing um, the, the, the debt uh, that, that adultery creates. Uh, let, me, let me pick up in verse 30. Uh, this is Proverbs 6, Proverbs 6.30. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he's hungry. But if he's caught, he'll pay sevenfold. He'll give all the goods of his house. Okay, now what's that saying? That's saying if, if, if I steal your TV, if I walk in the middle of the night when I know that you're not there and I steal your TV and I take it for myself and I plug it in and I'm watching that big 70 inch in, in my own house and you find out and you send the police and the police come get me and yeah, I did it. I, I stole your TV. Uh, it is possible to make that right. It's hard, but it's possible, right? Like if I buy you 10 100 inch TVs, I don't even know if that exists, but you know, if I buy you 10 TVs better than the one you had and, and, and I show, you know, genuine perfect repentance, then I can make that right with you. Like we can be friends again. 
possible. But listen to this. Verse 32, but he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He'll get wounds and dishonor. He, he, he has disgrace that will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious and he'll not spare when he takes revenge. He'll accept no compensation. He will refuse though you multiply gifts. What Proverbs is pointing out is how are you going to make that right? Well, I don't think you can. So how big a debt does adultery produce? Huge, right? This enormous debt, okay? But now we come over to Jesus. How much is Jesus' life worth? That's a great question, isn't it? I wish we could spend the rest of the time just talking about how much is Jesus' life? How much is the death of the perfect Son of God, the creator of all things, the one from whom all life flows? Remember John 1, 4? All of life is in Jesus, flowing out of Jesus. Everything that we have that satisfies, that is truly life, comes from Jesus. How much is his life worth? Well, it's infinite, right? Can it pay the debt of adultery? Yes, it can. And therefore, Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, so I just needed to say all that because I wanted to, okay? So this, that's the gospel, all right? So, so Jesus is about to say, you know, neither do I condemn you, Go and sin no more, right? He's about to free this lady and send her away, forgiven, not condemned, and empowered not to sin, okay? So, so he can do that because of the cross of Jesus Christ, the resurrection, okay? So that can be done in Christ. Now, let's go back to the story, okay? So they throw her down in the midst, and what does Jesus do? He writes in the dirt, okay? He's writing in the dirt, um, what is he writing in the dirt? Okay, uh, let me take another rabbit trail. Again, tell me afterward. You guys may not ha- at all be interested in this, but one, one of the things that convinces me that this story is authoritative is the other, the other alternative is that somebody made it up, okay? If you make up this story, why don't you tell us what he wrote in the dirt? Does that make sense? Like anytime anybody reads this story, what do they ask? What do you write in the dirt, Right? Okay, so if you make up a story, like if, if it's just, you know, you're making it up and, 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 and he writes something in the dirt, well then, right, you're, it's going to be like, ooh, that's really significant. What did he write in the dirt? You know, he, he wrote the name of the harlot that the chief ringleader, had, you know, whatever, right? Like, it, like you're going you're gonna to connect that. But we, we don't know what he wrote. We don't know what he wrote. Why don't we know what he wrote? Because an eyewitness was watching this and probably couldn't see what he wrote. Or maybe he didn't write anything, Right? Okay, again, back, back to the story, all right? What did he write? I don't know. Nobody knows. But can, can, I, can I make some speculations with you, okay? So let, let's, just, let's just walk through maybe some choices. Number one, maybe nothing. Um, maybe he was just literally doodling in the dirt, okay? Um, if that is true, let me tell you what I like about that. Well, I like about it anyway, but I, I love that Jesus' authority and control are manifested in every situation. Man, I don't know what it's like to have a mob of angry men with rocks in their hands throw down a woman in front of me and I have to make the decision whether she lives or dies. I don't know what that's like, but that's gotta be pretty stressful, right? 
So here you've got this woman probably maybe weeping, sobbing, maybe trying to cover herself up. They caught her in the act, right? She's thrown down. She's shamed. She's humiliated. You got this mob of angry, hypocritical men who are about to murder this woman. And, and what do you have Jesus doing? I mean, I just, I just love it. I just love the, the picture of it, you know? Like, you know, like they're all cranked up to this fever pitch and, and Jesus is is in perfect control. I, you guys don't like that as much as I do. But I, 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 just, I just love the picture of, of, I guess, Jesus' sovereignty. You know, they're trying to trap him. They're trying to get him. He's just, anyway. Number two, could he be acting out Jeremiah 17, 13? Um, this is an interesting speculation. Jeremiah 17, 13 says, um, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Jeremiah 17, 13 says, all who turn away from you, their names will be written in the earth. You know, is, is, he, is, he, is he going back to Jeremiah? I, I don't know. Okay, just, I'm just reading you things that I've read, that people have said. Um, may, maybe the one that I, I, I think probably is the best answer is, is he's writing the Ten Commandments. So in, in Exodus 31, 18, do you remember when it describes, we won't read that, but, but when it describes how God wrote the Ten Commandments, do you remember how he wrote them? Um, he wrote them with his, his finger, right? He, he says, the finger of God etched the commandments into the stone, okay? Um, it just seems very probable to me that as these guys come and they're, they're wanting death for this woman who's broken the seventh commandment, I just wonder if Jesus is, is writing the other commandments in the dirt, you know? Uh, hey, guys, you, you haven't kept any of these, right? Um, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. The one that I want, the option that I want to, to, to be, like, like that's the one I probably think it is. Um, the option that I want it to be is that the one we mentioned before, like he's writing the sins of these guys, you know? Uh, just maybe names, maybe places, I don't, I don't know, but that, 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 that's a real cool one to me to think about, you know, is he's just saying, hey, you want death for this gal? What about last Friday, you know, around the corner, you know, up upstairs on the second floor that, you know, what? I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Um, some, I've also speculated book of Daniel talks about um, the, the handwriting on the wall. Remember that in the book of Daniel where during Belshazzar's feast, uh, the, the handwriting on the wall, many, many tekel, uh, farsum, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. That would also apply here. Um, we don't know. We don't know what he wrote. The only thing we know is that Jesus stands up and he says, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. That's what he says. He is without sin among you. Let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he bends back down and starts riding again in the dirt. Now, do you see what Jesus did there? He turns the law back on them, right? They're coming. And by the way, we're super good at this. They're, they're coming and they're saying, she did this and deserves this, right? Man, we're really good at that. We're really good at taking the law, taking the scriptures, taking what's right, taking what's wrong, and we're really good at pointing out other people, you're a lawbreaker, you did this, you've offended me, you deserve death, you deserve to be punished, I want you to get what you deserve. Man, we're just, we're super good at that. But Jesus turns it around. Okay. Whoever is without sin, you're the first. Throw the first rock. 
He's actually given them permission to execute here. But the first one needs to be the one who is without sin. How, how do you use the law? How do you use what's right and wrong? How do you use the standard of God's righteousness? Do you use it to see your own sin and repent? Do you use it to see how much you need Jesus, a Savior? Do you, do, you, do you use the law to make you flee to Christ in his mercy? Or do you, do you use it to throw rocks? I think we tend to be quick to recognize and point out the shortcomings of others and very slow to see our own shortcomings. Isn't that what Jesus was saying in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 when he said, Judge not lest that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? How do you say to your brother, let, him, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eyes. You got, you got a group of men here with two by fours hanging out of their eyes, you know, aiming for the rock for this lady. James chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. James 4, 11 says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother judges his brother, speaks evil against the law, and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So these guys were completely focused on the sins of the woman, the sins of others. But when confronted with their own sin, they put down the rocks. I, I, I'm telling you, this is a, uh, this, it's a super helpful thing. Have you, have you ever been really cranked up about the sin of somebody else? Like maybe it was your spouse, you felt sinned against you or somebody disappointed you or one of your friends or somebody at church or I don't know, some of your neighbors, somebody at work. You mean, you're just, you're just complete, like you're just fuming on the inside with this righteous indignation that they be punished for what they deserve. And then have you ever had this happen? You know, you're in the middle of that and God reveals to you your own sin. Have you ever noticed how that melts you? I think melt is a great word there. I mean, it just absolutely melts you um, when you see your own sin. What do you do? You slowly put down your rock and you go deal with your own issues, right? Well, that's exactly what happened. These guys were basically guilty of hypocrisy. They didn't really care about the law. It was, it was they cared about hurting Jesus and and they were using, willing to use the law to hurt somebody else. Their motive was not justice. It was not the honor and glory of God. Um, they, they just hated Jesus. They wanted to trap him. And, and when they're confronted with their own sin, then they, they slowly walk away. It says the oldest to the youngest. Isn't that interesting? Uh, why? Again, only speculation. But I'm just thinking uh, us old guys have more sin that we got to deal with than the young guys. Okay? Uh, not that old guys sin more, but we've just lived longer. Uh, Question, is Jesus saying it is never right to confront someone about their sin? That is the most frequent way that I use, I hear this passage used, you know. Well, he who's without sin, throw the first stone, right? 
Like, in other words, you know, someone goes to somebody and, and man, like, I care about you. I love you. you. I don't want you to live this way. Well, you know, he was out of sin. Let them be the first to cast the first stone. Okay. Is that, is that the point that we ought to take from John 8? That is not the point we ought to take from John 8. Why? Because here's what's true. Jesus confronts sin. Okay. Paul confronts sin. Peter confronts sin. Actually, Paul confronts Peter's sin in the book of Galatians and in the book of Acts. And, and so um, the early church confronts sin. The Bible confronts sin. But the end goal, here's the difference. The end goal is not to bash them with a rock. The end goal is to get them out of sin and to Jesus. Or, or, or more, more rightly spoken, get them to Jesus and then out of sin. All right? That's the right order. So in other words, you should bring sinners to Jesus. Have you ever thought about this? What those guys did was actually, careful here, be careful, was actually the best thing that could have happened to that lady. Like, she found Jesus. So bringing her to Jesus was not a bad thing. They, they just should have left the rocks at home. So yes, bring people to Jesus. Yes, and, you know, confront and engage a culture of sinners. Yes, yes, yes. But just, just leave the rocks. So it's good to bring sinners to Jesus just without the rocks. So all the men leave. They all leave. And it's just Jesus and the woman. Isn't it interesting that he doesn't engage the woman about her sin until everybody leaves. Um, today, I think people would be tempted to put it on Facebook first and then Twitter and then Instagram and then confront the person. Jesus doesn't do that. Um, they all leave and then Jesus actually engages the woman and he comes and says, woman, where, where are they? This is verse 10. Where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, Lord. Uh, I take great significance in that word Lord, by the way. I think something has just happened here, okay? Um, note, notice something. Notice something. Maybe, maybe the most culturally important point about this passage. Jesus and the woman don't talk about how terrible the judgmental, hypocritical men were. They don't talk about that. Isn't that interesting? You know why I find that interesting? is because most of the time when I talk to sinners who've been confronted in sin, maybe harshly, or maybe by someone who didn't have a loving spirit, maybe someone who didn't have a good motive, maybe someone who was packing a rock, whenever I talk to that person, you know all they want to talk about? All they want to talk about is how stinking bad those hypocritical guys with the rocks are. That's, that's all they want to talk about. Now, I'm not saying they weren't bad. Actually, in other places in the scripture, Jesus calls them a den of vipers and whitewashed tombs, okay? Absolutely, that, that it is bad to be that kind of person who only wants the law for everybody else and doesn't use them for themselves. That, that, that's bad. Nobody's saying that's not bad. But isn't it interesting? That's not what Jesus and the woman talk about. He didn't lift her up and say, man, let's go, to the, let's go have some coffee and talk about how bad those guys are. Man, they've been wanting to kill me for a long time, and man, they're just a bunch of scum buckets. You bet they sure are. You know, no, no. That, that's not what they talk about. You know why? Because that's not productive. 
I feel like I've been telling a lot of stories about myself. I haven't always, I haven't done this really at Lincoln Avenue very much, and so I feel a little nervous about this, but man, this is just a good story for this. So I was lost. I was, didn't know Jesus as my king. I was in high school, and uh, my mom um, had a friend, good lady, Christian lady, and uh, that lady saw my car behind the liquor store in Scott City, Kansas, and she shared that with my mom, and my mom shared it with me. And uh, I, was, I was a good talker even back then. And, uh, man, I just launched into how, I don't even know that I denied it. I think I, just, uh, I, think I just, just launched into this tirade about how hypocritical and horrible church people are and condemning people and jumping to, uh, you know, con- conclusions. And, and I, man, I just laid it on thick, you know, just every bad thing I could think about our church Man, I just slathered it on, stick as I could put it. I think I actually made my mom feel bad. She, she kind of dropped it, actually. What was I doing behind the liquor store? Well, I wasn't sharing tracks. <laughs> I was guilty. I was guilty. And, and, and all I did was try to Get the guilt off me and onto somebody else. I I love that there's none of that here. (laughs) Those guys were bad dudes. But that's not what they're going to talk about. What are they going to talk about? Hey, I don't condemn you. What's Jesus saying? I forgive you. Now, go and sin no more. Right? Listen, sin is deadly. Sin brings wrath and judgment and eternal death. And you got to deal with your own sin. And listen, pointing out the badness of everybody else does not get rid of your sin. I think we've got a whole culture doing that. Like, well, I, I may be living in sin, but let me tell you how bad these finger pointing stone throwers are. Well, that, they might be bad. But that didn't change the fact that you're going to hell in your sin. I, I love, look, look with me at verse 11. She said, no one, Lord. Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go, and then there's this little phrase that I want you to pay attention to. From now on. Do, do you see that? I, I don't want to make too much of that, but what, what is he saying? He's saying, Something happened now. Isn't that what he's saying? From now on. There's a line in the sand. From now on. What just happened? This woman had an encounter with Jesus. That's what just happened. She met Jesus. From now on. In other words, you've had an encounter with me. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm putting theology back into this, but it, it's, it's what happened. It's what's true. Okay. She says, no one, Lord. I'm, I'm taking that as her recognizing Jesus as the Messiah, okay? From now on, okay? In other words, you've had an encounter with me. But your sin is taken care of. I do not condemn you. Now I'm empowering you to go and to sin no more. The law hadn't restrained this lady from sin. We must assume she's a Jewish woman. She knew the law, and yet she climbed into bed with a man that was not her husband. She knew what the law said. She was a Jewish woman, but the law did not keep her from sin. But Jesus says, but now, from now on, you've met me, and I don't condemn you. 
You've experienced the grace of God. Now to go and sin no more. I mean, I think the order of the text here is, is very important. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You see, if, if you try to get to go and sin no more before you have an encounter with Jesus, before you understand that you've been forgiven by Jesus, then you'll never get there. That's trying to live by the law. But when you have an encounter with Jesus, then you can go and sin no more. From now on. I, I want to take you um, to a passage, John 5. We, we, we missed this. Just I didn't, I didn't feel like I wanted to preach it, but I hated to skip it because it's got this beautiful, important phrase in it. Um, Jesus is never, ever soft on sin. Don't, don't, don't take that from this passage. I don't want you to walk away from John 8 saying, sin's not that big a deal with Jesus. He just picked her up and said, okay, go on. Go on. Maybe you can get back to what you're doing. No, not at all. Not at all. An encounter with Jesus changed this woman, and now he's sending her to live a new life. In John 5, you have this, this paralytic. Uh, in verse 3, if you'll notice, uh, this guy has been laying with the invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. One man was there. This is verse 5. Uh, who had been an invalid for 38 years. Okay, this guy has been paralyzed, an invalid, unable to work, unable to function in society, unable to, to function with his family, unable to work. He's been an invalid for 38 years, okay? And Jesus walks up to him and heals him. Take up your bed, walk. He's healed. He's perfect. He's made whole. And then Jesus says this beautiful thing to him in verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you're well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Isn't that great? Nothing worse. Worse? What's worse than 38 years paralyzed, begging by a pool, hoping for some kind of miracle? What's worse than that? Living a life of sin. That's what's worse than that. Sin is the worst thing. Your sin is the worst thing in your life. No matter what people can do to you or judge you or speak about you. No, 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 no. Let's get things straight. Your sin is the worst thing in your life. It is the most destructive thing in life. It will hurt you worse than anything else or anybody else could ever do. You got to deal with your sin. And so Jesus is not saying, hey, I don't condemn you. Keep going on in your sin. No, sin destroys. Sin brings misery. Sin, sin brings shame and dishonor and separates us from God. And if we stay in sin, we'll, we'll perish in a place called hell in, in eternal judgment and the wrath of God. No, no, no. When you have an encounter with Jesus, he takes your sin, he gives you his righteousness, and then he empowers you to go and sin no more. That is a beautiful picture of the gospel. And I want you to have it. Let's pray. Father, I pray, God, that you would... Um, Make the gospel so crisp and vivid and beautiful in, in the hearts and the minds of those gathered today. God, that we might embrace what you've done for us as sufficient. Lord, that, that the deepest, darkest, stained, humiliating experiences of our life might be completely forgiven and that we might never be condemned for them. And Father, that we might have your righteousness and God, that through that, 
we might sin no more. We might be empowered to live a new life and to follow you. Father, help us to engage our culture. God, help us to confront people who don't know you, who are living in sin, who are perishing. God, help us to do that without rocks. But God, help us to to be successful in bringing people to you. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.